Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. So all God's people said, let us worship the triune God. The Lord is risen. The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of the rock of my salvation. It is God that avengeth me, and that bringeth down the people under me, and that bringeth me forth from mine enemies. Thou also hast lifted me up on high above them that rose up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Our Father, great God, you are the rock of our salvation, and we worship, you now, we worship you now in the name of Jesus Christ. You are the one who vindicates your people again and again, and you delight to deliver us from the lip of the abyss. You delight to glorify your name through rescue after rescue, and so we call upon you to do it yet again. You love to glorify your name in this way, and so we ask you to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. 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 In answer to the particular question of whether or not Jesus is going to reign over a particular part of the earth or not, the answer that Isaac Watts suggested that we just sang is an apt one. Well, he asks, does the sun shine on it? Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. This is a view that is not universally held. The kings of the earth and all their great ones have assembled together in order to prevent it from happening. They have convened their parliaments and their great assemblies. They have jets flying in from all over. They have held great conventions, congresses of parliaments and parliaments of congresses. Everything is in order. All has been dealt with tidily, and the appropriate motions were made, seconded, minuted, passed, minuted, and filed. And the God of heaven holds them all in derision. The divine wrath is preceded by divine scorn. Men breathe through their noses. Men walk around on two feet, sticking those same noses up in the air. They have no need of the God hypothesis. They deny that it was God who made us and solemnly affirm the silliness of the contrary, that it was somehow we ourselves. An utterly blind craftsman, an infinitely stupid blank process, one stupendously great avalanche of tumbling nonsense, pretends to have the kind of deft expertise that could repair sewing machines, manufacture iPhones, and hit the strike zone at 95 miles an hour. Deaf as a post, this great concatenation of Adam's spit out Mozart, Blind as the inside of a cavern, this meaningless collection of matter gave us countless glorious sunsets over the Rockies. As stupid as a pile of underachieving rocks, this accidental cosmos churned out its Newtons and Einsteins, its Bachs and Beethovens, its Augustines and Calvins. Their argument is straightforward. God has done nothing whatever for us. He did not create us. We owe him nothing. And his kingdom will not stretch from shore to shore. Straightforward, but false. God has created us from nothing. We owe him everything. He died on the cross to offer us forgiveness. We owe him everything over again. And as one who purchased it all with the blood of his son, he is fully intent to have it all till moons shall wax and wane no more. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so let's prepare our hearts for doing that by singing, Create in me a clean heart. Amen. So as you're able, please kneel before the Lord. We have sinned with our fathers, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedly. Our Father and God, we do confess the sin that we have of forgetting you. We have not forgotten you on paper, we have not forgotten you technically as your people, we still worship you, but Father, we've been far too influenced by the unbelief and the atheism and the secularism that surrounds us on every hand. Father, we confess that you have not been in our thoughts constantly the way you ought to have been in our thoughts. Father, we confess that we've not loved you with a whole heart the way we ought to. We have not have loved you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we confess that as we kneel before you, as we acknowledge our sin to you, 
We pray that you would give us this opportunity, bring to, bring to mind, bring to heart all the things that we should confess individually now. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, and Selah. You have confessed your sins. You've confessed your sins honestly. You have not been hypocritical in the presence of God. And therefore, as his minister, it is my pleasure to announce that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Praise Our sermon text is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. These are the words of God. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, thou art my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered unto him. Father, we give you thanks that you created the world and ordained seasons for our blessing and our enjoyment. And so as we come into a new summer, we want to use this time well for your glory, for the blessing of our families and neighbors, and for the building of your kingdom. So we ask for your spirit to apply this word to our lives now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as the school year comes in for a landing and we launch into another summer, it's worth giving thought to what we might need to be on the lookout for. What's in front of us? What are we likely to face? What will be the challenges? What will be the temptations? How can we spend our summers well? Like most things, it takes thought and preparation to use and enjoy summertime well. If you're preparing to get married, you frequently will go meet with the pastor a couple of times to get ready to get married. If you're uh, getting ready to buy a house, you might go meet with a, a financial advisor or a real estate agent and ask what are the things that we need to have in order in order to buy a house. If you're getting ready to go to college, you're thinking about um, how to prepare well for college. And um, we do this thing called summer every year. So why not prepare for it well? Summer is worth preparing for. So let's look at this text from Mark chapter 1 and then use it as a way of thinking about how we might spend the next couple of months well. Here at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was baptized, as you know, by John at the Jordan River. He was then filled with the Spirit and he received a benediction from his father. You see this in verses 9 and 10 and 11. It came in those days, Jesus was baptized of John in the Jordan. Uh, the spirit came upon him and a voice from heaven spoke, this is my beloved son. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The same spirit that anointed him and sealed uh, the father's blessing to him, as we saw in verse 10, immediately drives him into the wilderness. Verse 12, immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. There he faced temptations from Satan, as well as perhaps various challenges with the wild beasts, which do not go mentioned. And ultimately the angels ministered to him. You see that in verse 13, he was there for 40 days, tempted by Satan, was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. It seems clear that the baptism of Jesus was his preparation for this impending temptation. So this baptism of Jesus was his preparation for his temptation to come. The spirit that descends upon him is the spirit that leads him into the wilderness to face that temptation. But I think it's also worth pointing out that this whole period, his baptism and this initial temptation, is also preparation for his entire life in ministry. 
This is how God the Father prepares his son both to face this initial temptation, but holding it all together, this is how God the Father prepares his son for his entire life, for his entire ministry, culminating in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so uh, we may take a few lessons from it on the theme of preparing. One of the principles of parenting is preparing your children for what they will face next. When your children are very young, you need to practice saying thank you and sitting still for church before you actually face those situations. These small people just got here. And so all things being equal, we need to prepare them for the things that they will face. And so if you want them to be able to say thank you to the new person that just gave them candy or whatever, then what you do is during the week, you're practicing constantly with them and you're giving them instructions. Say thank you, thank you, say thank you, thank you. And then when you get to the test, you know perfectly well that they know how to say thank you. But if you're not in a habit of practicing that and then suddenly some random stranger or person at church does something nice for them, then you say, say thank you. Say th I said, say thank you. Right? But have they been practicing? Did you teach them how to do that? You know, they're just learning this language. Right? And, and, you know, and of course, they're sinners, and so that needs to be taken into account. But one of the things that's challenging, especially when the little ones are little, is you're trying to figure out what they know and what they don't know. You're trying to figure out, is this sin or, uh, or did you not hear me? Is this sin or do you not know what I'm talking about? And so one of the ways to cut through that question mark is practice. So you, Monday, say thank you, thank you. On Tuesday, say thank you, thank you. And you're practicing all through the week. And then when you, when you get to church and some, you know, say thank you and nothing, ha nothing doing, then you know exactly what's going on. We've been doing this all week long. You speak English. You know exactly what this means. And, and so... Um, I'll be right back and, you know, haul them off and come back and try again. Um, same thing with church. Um, you know, you think this is what we do every Sunday, but they, again, they just got here. They don't, they're, and they're, you know, this whole sit still thing is, is new. And, and so one of the things we did when the kids were little was we, we had, we practiced church. So this is just a great way to have family devotions, but you read, the, read a few verses from the Bible and you sit and listen quietly, you know, five minutes, sing the Lord's Prayer together, sing the doxology together, maybe say the creed together, and, and then they, they're starting to figure this out. Oh, this is something we do together, and okay, and when we do that, we sit here together as a family, and oh, I know this part, and, and, but what you're doing is, and you're practicing so that when you get to Sunday morning, they're not looking around saying, what in the world is this? You want me to do what? And if you haven't sat still all week long, and then suddenly you're like, sit still, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Good luck. But what you want to be doing is preparing them for what you know is coming. So you know they're going to have to say thank you. You know they're going to have to say please. You know they're going to have to obey you. That You know they're going to have to sit still. They're going to have to sing the doxology. They're going to have to hold their bread and wait. Well, then practice. It's one of the ways you love your children, by practicing. First you teach, then you require. First you teach, then you require. Knowing your children well means talking to them about what their individual temptations are likely to be when they arrive at the next thing. And so this is another principle, of course, is as you've been doing the parenting thing for a little while, you realize that your kids are different. And so some of them, they just say thank you like that, and some of them don't. Some of them get the sit still and hold the bread or whatever pretty quick, and they're, they're all into it, and some of them don't. And so you need to know your children, know each one of them, and know what they're likely to face because you know their particular temptations. I remember when our children were younger, uh, one of my children, who I will endeavor to keep nameless, um, had a particular challenge at the, at the grocery store. Um, after a few times early on, we found out that this child had a particular temptation with, uh, the, you know, you go through the, the uh, refrigerator section or the freezer section, and the, the glass panes on these, the, 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 um, those aisles apparently were particularly appetizing to this particular child, and this child had a temptation to lick the glass <laughs> in the freezer section. And so it became a point of discipline, and so for, there was a little time running when we got to the grocery store, there was a little conversation with mom in the car before we went into the grocery store. Now, child, there are going to be, uh, there's going to be a frozen section, and there's going to be glass, and you can't lick it. And that was our way of trying to love this child and to prepare this child for the temptation that was sure to come. 
Um, and, you know, your children likely have more normal temptations than my children. <laughs> but you get the idea. And, and so love your children individually. Think ahead. What are their temptations likely to be? Know their frame. Uh, know what their weaknesses uh, might be. So what are the temptations and the challenges likely to be this summer? It's worth stopping and just asking that question. What are the temptations and challenges likely to be this summer for you and your children? I'm not just talking about your kids. I'm also talking about you. What are your challenges likely to be? What temptations will you face on family vacation? What temptations will you face on that 12-hour car ride? What temptations will you face with more free time? What will you face at the family reunion, on a baseball team, at summer camp, a summer job, or maybe it's college next fall, or maybe it's with kids home all day long with you? What will you face? This is the one of the ways we love one another, by thinking about and preparing for what's coming next. And this is something we see all through the Bible. Um, God did this in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is arguably one of the books of the Bible that's dedicated to preparing God's people for what's next. Moses gives this sermon series on the, on the edge of the promised land and says, this is what you're about to face. This is what's coming next. You're going to take the land. There's going to be vineyards. There's going to be cities. There's going to be wells. There's going to be plenty of food. And these are the challenges. This is what you're going to face next. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. And this sentiment is repeated a number of times in the book of Deuteronomy. When you get there, you're going to be tempted to think, look at what my hands have done. Look at what I did. Look how great I am, Moses says. This is going to be your temptation. I know you people. I've been with you for a little while. I know what you're going to be tempted to think. Don't do that. So the book of Deuteronomy is God preparing his people for the challenges they will face next, the temptations they'll face next. In our text, in Mark 1, we see how God the Father is preparing his son for a great trial. And one of the things that's really striking is that what it is, essentially, is his blessing. The way that God the Father prepares God the Son, his son in the flesh, for the temptation he's about to face in the wilderness, but also then the challenges that he's going to face throughout the three years of his ministry, and then his betrayal and his trial and his crucifixion and his death and his resurrection is essentially a blessing. That's how God the Father prepares his son for what's coming next. He blesses him. He blesses him and he speaks to him and about him with great love and kindness. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there's an important place for specific warnings and instructions that we've just talked about. And Deuteronomy is full of those kinds of instructions. But here we see that one of the most important preparations is the preparation of love and kindness. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But that's actually not just a generic thing. It's actually central to what Jesus is going to face. This word of the father, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased, actually becomes the central point of the temptation. If you really are the son of God, Right, well, you'll turn the stones into bread. If you really were the son of God, you'd throw yourself off of here. Let's see if you're really the son of God. That becomes the center of the temptation. And so central to the obedience of Jesus is remembering the blessing of his father. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Clinging to this word of the Father allowed Jesus to cling ultimately to the entirety of God's word. It was remembering and believing God's blessing. You are my son. Satan is there. If, if you're really the son of God, no, I am the son of God. He said, I am his son and he's well pleased with me. 
And, and so because he believed that, he knew that God's word was a, a good word to him. And so he could draw from it. And so he, he cites God's word. And you know this. He's, you know, but, but my father says, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. No, my, my father says that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. No, my father says... So it's clinging to the word of his father, that good word, the word of blessing, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased, that allows Jesus then to cling to the entirety of God's word. And don't miss the fact that this initial trial is its, itself also then preparation from the greater, for the greater trial to come in Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Remember, this is actually, this comes up a number of times. If you look at Matthew, for example, during the trial in Matthew 26, uh, 63, uh, you, have, you have the high priest interrogating Jesus, and it says, the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure thee by the living God that you tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Right? That's, that's the, that's the cross-examining high priest. Are you really the Son of God? And then this comes up again, uh, actually, on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 40, the, verse 39, they passed by and they reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. If you're really the son of God, come down. Again, challenging, ultimately, that first word of blessing at his baptism. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you're the son of God, come down. And so Jesus' faithfulness, even there on the cross, in the midst of his trial, is remembering and clinging to the word of blessing he received from his father. That's what prepared him to face that trial, that challenge. And again, in verse 43, it comes up again. They're mocking him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And so this is the foundation of all Christian preparation. Complete trust and rest in the blessing and kindness of God. This is the foundation of preparing for anything. Not just summer, but it's preparing for marriage. It's preparing for raising children, for preparing for retirement and old age, preparing for all of it, a new job, moving, new friends. You're preparing, what do you, how do you prepare? Christians prepare by resting completely in the blessing and kindness of their God. This is how Christians prepare. By remembering who you are in Christ before God. By standing under that blessing. By standing under his benediction. How did Jesus withstand all the temptations and accusations? By standing firm in his father's word of blessing. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. So we want that kindness, that blessing then, to characterize our lives. That's how God prepares us. And so that's what we want to have on us to prepare one another for everything that we face. We want that kindness, that blessing. That's how God prepared his son. That's how God prepares us. And so we want that then to be on us and in us and in our mouths as we prepare one another. So hear this from Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. This is what we want characterizing us. Bickering, arguing, unkind teasing, biting sarcasm can creep into homes and sometimes imperceptibly. You know how, you know how it is in a, well maybe you don't, but I know how, in a classroom, you know how a classroom levels just, the, deci the decibel just rises slowly, imperceptibly, and you're like, you know, okay, we're all gonna study quietly. Right? And what is study quiet, you know, and then 15 minutes, it's a little, and then it just, it just goes. And it, it's not anybody's trying to be nefarious and bad, usually. Right? It's one person talking a little bit louder just so somebody can hear them, and then somebody else in order to over, you know, to, to get their voice above the other one that's to say it just a little bit louder. And then someone else is trying to get something over to another person, and so it's just slowly building, and then suddenly the teacher looks up and says, wait, 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 this was quiet. This was quiet studying. Remember that part. 
Well, it's, it's, a, it's a similar thing in, in that bickering and arguing and unkind teasing can creep in frequently like that, where it's just a little dig or just a little jab or just a little over the edge, and then the next time it's just a little bit more than that, and nothing's you know, on fire yet, and nobody's snarling or, or calling each other bad names, but there's just a little edge and then a little bit more edge, and then a little snippy, and then a little bit more snippy, and these things can build sometimes seemingly imperceptibly. And frequently this means that parents are themselves guilty. Many times adults have enough self-awareness to keep their unkindness tethered to a wobbly pole we might call good manners, right? Frequently parents, adults, have enough self-awareness, awareness of the circumstances to keep their unkindness tethered to a wobbly pole we might call good manners. This doesn't mean you aren't being unkind, you've just gotten good at being unkind in and around and beside, quote, good manners. But kids are frequently not quite as socially adept and therefore their unkindness is more exposed and raw. And so it can, seem very surprising and disconcerting when you're driving down the road and a forest fire breaks out in the backseat of the Suburban. Where did that come from? We were just driving along and it was all happy and then, right, they, the kids and they just, what happened? Where did that come from? When your kids bicker regularly, you should think at least two things. First, they probably got it from you. And second, you may be doing it without knowing it. So do some checking. And remember, this is just what Jesus taught us. He said, before you remove the speck out of your brother's eye, remove the log out of your own eye. And remember, your children are your brothers. Your children are your sisters. And so before you go to remove the speck out of their eye, check your own eye. Check in the mirror. How do you talk to or about your children? How do you talk to or about your children? How do you talk to your spouse or your friends about the kids? How do you talk about them on Facebook? How do you talk about them? How do you talk to them? Okay, how do you talk to or about your spouse or your mom or your dad or your in-laws or your brother-in-law or your nieces or your nephews? or the neighbor kids, or your coworkers, or your boss. Did I get everybody? How, how do you talk about them? How do you talk about them to the kids? How do you talk about, how do you talk to them? You say, well, I say I'm just polite as can be, right. And what's going on under your breath? Well, I didn't say it out loud, okay. Right. What's going on in your heart? What's going on up here? Frequently, forest fires break out in the backseat of the Suburban because there are sparks flying out of the front seat. You're not on fire, but sparks. And remember, your kids are flammable. They're picking it up. They're taking notes. Mom's like this, and Dad talks about it like that. And they, and they don't have any of the filters. And, and so again, how, do you, how are you talking with your spouse up there in the front seat? You say, well, they don't understand. Oh, they understand. Right? They can pick up on a lot more than you think. It's okay for mom to give him that kind of edge. Okay. Got that. It's okay for him to snap a little bit. I mean, not a lot, but a little. Okay. But they don't have any kind of, they don't have the filters. They don't have the, the wobbly pole of good manners. And so it's going to come out. And so check yourself. Take the log out of your own eye first. Are you speaking kindly? Are you speaking with tenderheartedness? Are you speaking with forgiveness to and about those around you? And of course, our ultimate standard for this is, well, how does the father speak to and about his son? That's our text. How does the father speak to and about his son? In public, in front of everyone, how does the father speak? He says, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is how the father speaks about his son, full of delight, full of love, full of kindness, full of grace. You say, well, if I had a perfect son, I'd speak that way. 
right? He's, he got the deal of, you know, of the millennia. If I had a perfect, yeah, I'd have no problem speaking like that. Yeah, that's, I, I hear that. But, but the Bible already um, took care of that. The, the Bible says actually that you, you are required to imitate your perfect father anyway. Right? It's not about whether you have perfect children or perfect son or perfect daughter. It says, you therefore be perfect even as your father who is in heaven is perfect. So the standard is the perfect father, not whether your children are perfect. And, and notice, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, it's underlined. You can't get around this. You can't excuse yourself from this because the point, of course, is that the father who's perfect is good and kind to who? The good and the evil. Ha! Right? There you go. He, he causes the sun to shine on the good and the evil. He causes the rain to fall on the good and the evil. You be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. How does the father talk about his son? With pleasure, delight, kindness, blessing. And so we are called to do the same. Check your words. Is it full of kindness? Is it full of blessing? Is it full of benediction? You want your car to be full of the benediction of God this summer. You want your kitchen table to be overflowing with the blessing of God, the kindness of God this summer. You want your back patio in the backyard and, and you, you want the family vacation. You want it all overflowing the blessing and the kindness and the benediction of God. Of course, there is a time to ask for counsel about a difficulty. The point is not to say that you can't ever ask, well, you know, Johnny hit his sister three times today. Honey, what do I do? Any ideas? No, of course, you need to go get help. You need to ask for advice. You go to your parents, you go to your spouse, you go to a trusted friend, you go to a pastor or an elder, and you ask for advice. And when you're asking for advice, the point isn't to say, Johnny's wonderful all the time, and I'm here, you know, for advice. No, no. The point is, is that you can bring challenges, bring challenges, but bring the challenges in the spirit of the Father. Bring the challenges with the spirit of blessing, the spirit of delight, the spirit of kindness. Here's the situation. I love my son. I need to love him now. I love my daughter, and I need to love her now. I love this difficult individual in my life. I want to be a blessing to them. I see this difficulty. I see this challenge. I see this sin. I see this problem. How can I be a blessing here? That's the way you couch it. That's the way you frame it, which doesn't mean ignoring sin. It doesn't mean ignoring problems, but it means facing those problems and facing that situation again under the blessing of God so that you can bring the blessing of God. Remember also that among sinners, forgiveness is a central part of this kindness. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. In a fallen world, in a sinful world, the kindness that we show one another is forgiveness. Frequently, it's full of forgiveness. It's forgiving real wrongs, real sins. If, if it's not a real sin or a real wrong, then it doesn't need forgiveness. Forgiveness is for real sins, real wrongs. And so, this is how you practice kindness. This is how you imitate your Father in heaven. Remember, though, that without a baseline of deep kindness, without a baseline of deep kindness, love, forgiveness, blessing, and fellowship, your forgiveness can seem empty. There's, there's, plenty, there's many homes in which the baseline is static. The baseline is, I don't know if we're friends. The baseline is, I'm not sure if mom's mad or not. The baseline is that. And so then when there's sort of a, an attempt at some kind of reconciliation, will you forgive me, I forgive you, sure, what you're coming back into is not love and kindness and blessing. What you're coming back into is static. And then people say, well, I tried the apology thing. I tried asking for forgiveness and it didn't work. Well, no, it, it, it may or may not have worked. It may, not have, or not, it may or may not have been authentic. But the issue is, what's the baseline? Is the baseline love? Is the baseline blessing? Is the baseline kindness? Is that where people want to be? Is it happy there? So when it's happy there, when you say, please forgive me and I forgive you, what you're, coming, you're going back into that joy. You're going back into that fellowship. 
Maintaining fellowship presupposes real, joyful fellowship, kindness, and love. Otherwise, what are you restoring? What, what are you getting back into? And so this is why we want to pursue kindness, put away all the bitterness, all the wrath, all the anger, all the clamor, all the evil speaking, all the sarcastic biting, all, all of it. Seek forgiveness. Take the log out of your own eye. Address the specks in others' eyes. Put on kindness. Put on blessing. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Put on his kindness. Put his words of blessing in your mouth. Just a few other, sort of a grab bag of other temptations that you may face this summer. Summertime can be an opportunity for the devil to tempt you sexually. This may be related to the fact that people think it's okay not to wear most of their clothes if they're within 100 yards of a body of water. It's the most bizarrest thing in the world. You would never wear that in the mall. I, no, you would never wear that in my house. But there's... There's water 100 yards away? Okay. Makes no sense. But you know it's coming. You've been around the sun a few times here. You know the culture you live in. You know the world you live in. So prepare. Prepare yourself. Don't show up at the pool and say, who knew? You knew. Right? You're going to the beach for a summer vacation. Okay. Well, you know you're going to the beach. You know you're going to the pool party. You know, it. You know you're going to face it. You've been around the block a few times, so what are you going to do? What do you need to do? How are you going to prepare for it? And this goes both for those who may be tempted to undress that way. Uh, this goes also for those who may be tempted to undress that way because, well, everyone else is doing it. And so you might be in the category of people who are tempted to look, and you might be in the category of people who are tempted to be looked at. All right? Well, prepare. Where, what are you doing to prepare? How are you thinking about this summer in that regard. The Bible is clear that lust begins in the heart and is adultery in the heart. And so this goes for those who are tempted to look and for those who are tempted to try to get the looks. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. So what will you do? Right? You need to think about this. Don't pretend that you don't know it's coming. This also goes to, this applies to courtships, engagements, unwise friendships, Netflix, and cell phones, and probably some other things. Right. What, are you, what are you doing to prepare along these lines? Okay, you're courting. Great, wonderful. What are you doing to prepare and make sure that your summer is blessed by God in your courtship and not a train wreck? Well, you say, well, we're courting. Ta-da. Right. Well, it's like Pastor Doug likes to say, you know, dating, there's two idiots, and with courtship, there's six. <laughs> right? Okay, you got it. That's Pastor Doug says that. <laughs> right? So what are you going to do? You say, I, but it, we're court. No, courting doesn't make it all better. Right? You can screw that up too. Right? You can mess that up too, and you can have a train wreck at the end of the summer with courtship. Or you say, we're engaged. Congratulations. Wonderful that you're engaged. You're getting ready to marry. How are you preparing to use your engagement wisely? How are you preparing to be godly in your engagement so that you enter marriage under the blessing of God? Or just what about friendships? Are your friendships wise? Are they helpful? Are these friends leading you closer to Jesus or are they pulling you away? Are they the kind of friends who would say, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? I saw that you posted that on Facebook. Why did you do that? I, I, why are you going to that party? Or are they the kind of friends who just say, you're awesome, you look great in that, Every, whatever makes you happy, man, or they just laugh with you all the way to the bad place? Or are they the kind of friends who actually love you in the truth, care about you, and recognize that sometimes you might be wrong? Or maybe it's Netflix, Amazon Prime, whatever, Hulu, whatever your visual drug of choice is. What, how are you planning? Are you being wise? Are you being careful? Instagram? Or what about your cell phone? Remember that Jesus said to cut off the hands and eyes that cause us to sin. He said it would be better to enter into life maimed and blind than to go to hell with both your hands and both your eyes. So think about it for a second. Cutting off a hand, plucking out an eye would be painful and awkward. It would be painful and awkward, which means that Jesus didn't say, you know, just, just try something, you know an accountability group or something. That's not what Jesus said. He said, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye. 
So the solution or the preparation or the protection to face certain challenges is often gonna be somewhat painful and awkward. It may mean ditching a particular friendship. It may mean saying, sorry, I'm not going to that party. No, I'm not gonna go on that trip. No, I'm sorry, I can't do that with you. I'm not, I can't go to Silverwood with you, I'm sorry. No, I can't do that. Or I'm not gonna message you anymore. I'm not gonna text you anymore. That's not helping me grow in godliness. It might be painful and awkward, kind of like cutting off a hand or plucking out an eye. Maybe it means finding a different job because the coworkers are really not helping you. Maybe it means getting a dumb phone. Related to lust is the sin of envy. Prepare your hearts not to envy the summer break of someone else. Some of you will go on vacations to the Bahamas and some of you will work 60 hours a week to barely pay your bills. Prepare your hearts now to rejoice and give thanks for all of it. Rejoice in what God gives you. You mean God gives you the ability to pay all your bills? Praise God. And God gave you the ability to go on vacation. Praise God. Do not envy the summer vacation of those around you. Some of you will get new houses or cars or girlfriends, and some of you will still be in the beater you inherited from Gramps and as single as the Pope at the end of the summer. <laughs> Determine now that you will praise God for all of it, and that you will praise God for the blessings he gives to others. Right? You're engaged now, praise God. Right? You, you got a new house, praise God. And I'm, yeah, I'm still, yeah, and God gave me this house. Praise God. I've got this car. It drives. <laughs> Praise God. Right? Praise God. Determine now that you'll praise God for all of it, that you'll rejoice with those who rejoice. That you will rejoice, and you will rejoice with those who rejoice. Be prepared for temptations to be lazy. Lazy either in fighting sin or lazy in indulging your appetites. In a community like ours where we celebrate the gift of wine and beer, it's worth pointing out every now and again, drunkenness is a sin. And even if nobody around you knows you're drunk, it's still a sin. So is getting drunk on pot or painkillers or whatever else you might use to try to dull the pain. Whatever else you might use to try to escape In the Bible, drunkenness is not merely a sin. It's not just that something bad might happen if you get drunk and so you shouldn't do it. The Bible actually pictures the judgment of God as drunkenness. Those who are drunk, those whose senses have been numbed, those who can't think clearly, those who are not on full alert are already under the judgment of God. So determine in your hearts, your minds, and your decisions, don't be lazy, be alert, be watchful, be on your guard. The point of all this is not merely to stay out of trouble. Don't go home and say, Pastor Sumter said, don't get in trouble. Well, I did say that, but that's not the point. I want you to stay out of trouble because I want you to be blessed. I, the point is actually that you put some thought into how you use your summer to maximize the glory of God. So that you might put thought into how you might crush your summer. You might, that you might knock it out of the park. So that when you look back in three months and you do an assessment in September, you look back and say, wow, what an amazing gift those three months were. The warm weather, the sunshine, and all that we were able to do with the grandkids, with my spouse, with my children, with my neighbors, with my coworkers, with my church family. Wow, that's the point. The point is to walk in the blessing of God. As John Piper might put it, don't waste your summer. You not only want to plan to avoid sin, you also want to plan to succeed, plan to accomplish, plan to draw closer to God, closer to your people, and grow in holiness. When September comes around, you wanna look back and see progress in the fruit of the Spirit. You want to look back and say, thank, thank you, Lord. What a wonderful gift. 
One of the best ways you can ensure that you actually grow is make sure you plan to eat. One of the best ways you can plan to grow is plan to eat. Remember, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How will you grow? Well, you grow on the word of God. You grow on scripture. You grow on Bible. So plan to binge on the Bible this summer. Don't go light on scripture. Be extreme in the word. Guzzle it. Feast on it. Not because you have to, but because you get to. Because his word is good. What is his word? His word is blessing. His word is kindness. And when you come hungry, his word is always ultimately kindness and blessing. All temptation is ultimately a test of whether you will trust the blessing of the Father or not. Every temptation is going all the way back ultimately to the Garden of Eden with the question of whether God really said, and specifically, is God really good? That's what all temptation basically boils down to. Has God really said, and is God really good? In a sinful world where we have all sinned, and we are, e we are even more tempted to doubt God's goodness because we've sinned. In a fallen world, because we've sinned, we're even more tempted to doubt God's goodness. Sure, sure, Jesus could trust God's word of blessing because Jesus was perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I've failed. Can I really count on God's blessing now? We're a bunch of sinners. Surely he's not going to bless me now. Maybe I need to just grab this good thing now because it's probably not going to come now that I've screwed everything up so much. No, this is why we're Christians. The perfect son went to the cross for all your sin. He suffered for our sin so that you might stand before the father and hear his benediction over you. Jesus obeyed perfectly and died for our sins so that the blessing of the Father might be yours. And so hear this from the Father of all glory who knows all that you have ever done, said, or thought. He says to you, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's not just the benediction of Jesus. That's your benediction in him. Do you believe that? No, really. Do you hear the Father saying that over you? Because the Son was perfect and obedient all the way to the cross for you. That's, that's the good news. That's the gospel. Don't look to the side. Don't look at the person next to you. Don't look down. Don't look at all your failures. Look at Christ, who is our righteousness, who is our goodness. And in him, hear God's blessing over you. This is the kindness of God, and may this kindness, his blessing over you in Jesus, may it fill your hearts and your minds and your mouths and your words and your homes and your cars and your vacations and your work this summer. And whenever you hit a bump or you fall down on your face, remember this, the kindness of God is still right there waiting for you to welcome you right back in. It's the kindness of God right there waiting for you. And since it's waiting there for you, let it be waiting there for your kids and for your husband and your wife and your neighbor and your in-laws. Because Jesus died and rose again and made all things new. Our Father, we are such a frail and forgetful people, but you have called us to yourself anyway. You've washed us and clothed us and blessed us and so we want to walk in the reality of that grace. So pour out your spirit upon us now so that we might fight sin and temptation faithfully this summer so that our hearts and homes and neighborhoods and cars might be more full of the fruit of the spirit come September by your grace. In Luke 22:19 it says, and he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Knowing and understanding are certainly important, but knowledge is built upon doing, not the other way around. Doing is not built upon knowing. Knowing is built upon doing. In the verse I just read from Luke 22, I want to emphasize the words, This do. Jesus said, This do in remembrance of me.
He said to do something, and he also said that we were to do it in a particular way. We were to do it leaning toward a particular end. He did not say to figure it all out. He didn't say to figure out all the po possible ramifications of doing it in that particular way. And he did not say to write learned treatises on the ramifications of doing it in that, in that way and having it all figured out and to then commence the project of actually doing it. No, we begin with the doing. Each time we do this, we are to remind ourselves and one another that we are remembering the Lord. But we don't remember him perfectly and then come to the supper for our reward. It is not as though we were show poodles and remembering him is the trick we perform and the supper is the treat we get. A thousand times, no. We do the Lord's Supper the same way we master our native language. We begin by doing and often by doing in very inadequate ways. Think of a toddler speaking his first sentence. But the arc of all language bends toward intelligibility, and as we do, we are constantly learning, honing, refining, and remembering. We are closing in on it. We want this sacrament that is before you now to be your native language. Just as a literate person cannot look at a word without seeing instantly, simultaneously, what it means, so also we want you, as real Christians, to be unable to look at the bread and wine and not see Christ. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. You've heard a sermon exhorting you to get ready, be prepared, watch yourself, guard your heart, get ready for summer and all the things that are related to that and all the things that are related to temptations year round. So get ready. But there are two ways, well, there's three ways to go. One is to heed the warning and do what the warning encourages you to do. But there are two ways to get it wrong. And we generally think that there's one way to get it wrong, and that's how we go wrong the other way. We think that we go wrong if we don't heed the warning. If we just say, well, I'll get ready tomorrow, or I'll prepare tomorrow, manana, it'll be, it'll be fine. I'll, I'll have time to get it all together later. That's one way we get it wrong. That's one way we don't heed the warning. The other way we don't heed the warning, however, is what Peter did when Jesus was warning him about his coming denial. Peter ran ahead. Peter rushed it. Peter got out over the edge of his skis. Peter said, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm going to chop off people's ears. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get ready. I'm going to read my Bible like crazy. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the best preparer you ever saw. That's another, that's another way of not preparing yourself. That's another way of rushing headlong. Just one foot in front of the other, steady as she goes, trust God, love God, hate sin. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And amen. amen.